Welcome to Asking for a Friend. Today on the podcast, we have Ethan, as always, and our guest today is Zach Miller. Zach is an ultra-endurance athlete from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He's a team member with the North Face and is one of the most recognizable names today in ultra-running. Zach, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. It's, uh, it's good to be here. I wanted to lead off with a little bit of bio, which... This list is getting too long to read all of them, but tell me if I've got this right. So you kind of came onto the scene when you won the JFK 50 in 2013. I was literally on a vacation from working on a cruise ship when I ran that race. So were you just training on the ship, like on a treadmill, or was this an off-the-couch effort? I was training uh, on the ship. I think I didn't know exactly how good of shape I was in. But yes, I was training a lot of treadmill miles. I think some running up and down stairwells. I had a coworker who would lead spin classes for the crew and I would do those classes and ride the bike and then run in port. Like when we were in port, I would go out and run like really cool stuff. So you went on from there, you got first at Lake Sonoma. That was a 50 miler in 2014. And then at CCC in Europe, you got first in 2015, which is a big European race. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I believe that's, yeah, 2015. And then Madeira Island in 2016, first. 2016 and 2017, top 10 finishes at UTMB. First place at Trail 100 Andorra last year, 2022. Fifth place at UTMB last year. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. And then first at Tarawera? Yeah, the 100 mile down at Tarawera. Okay. And then this one I totally missed until I was researching this the other day. Sixth at World Mountain in Innsbruck last year? Or yeah. this year? Yeah, this year. This year. Um, so this is like 85K. Right. Uh, yeah, I was sixth. Yes, sixth at World Championships. Incredible. And then second at UTMB which is kind of a historic event that I want to spend a little bit of time on. It was the first time an American male has won UTMB. That was Jim Walmsley. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. There's been, uh, I don't want to mess up, but there's been like about four or five American women who have won. Yeah. Um, and then, but no American man. Yeah. Um, so yes, Jim this year was the first American man to win UTMB. That, that's a great note. American women have been dominant at UTMB for several years. Courtney has won a few times, right? Yeah, Courtney DeWalter. I think Courtney DeWalter's won two or three. Rory Bozio has won, I think, two. Katie Scheid has won one. Chrissy Mole has won one. I think Lizzie Hawker maybe has won. Well, I don't, actually, Chrissy Mole, I'm not sure. I think she's won at least one. Maybe it's more. I think Lizzie Hawker has won, and then I think Nikki Kimball has won. So I think I think that's all of them. I'm sorry if I missed yeah, any, yeah. Um, but I think it's those six women who have won there. Some of them winning multiple times. Courtney and Rory winning multiple times for sure. The other women, I'm not quite sure. Courtney had an incredible year. She went up for three huge races, right? Yeah, so she she did something that has never been done before in the sport, uh, men or women. She won and set the course record at Western States 100 which was an old, well, rel not ancient, but like a fairly 
fairly like, have been standing for quite a few years. Uh, Ellie Greenwood had it. She's a s- super stout runner. It was kind of a record. I think people weren't sure if it would ever go down. Courtney won and set the course record at Western States. Then three weeks later, she won and set the course record at Hard Rock 100, which is a much different race than Western States. Western States is very runnable and hot. Hard Rock is extremely mountainous and extremely high altitude. A lot more technical, I'd say, than Western States. And then I think it was about five weeks later, she went and won UTMB. So yeah, nobody has ever won all three of those races in a single year. It's really hard to do because they're all very hard 100-mile races. Two of them, UTMB and Western, are very competitive. Hard Rock is the lesser competitive of the three, but a very challenging course in and of its, just the course alone is challenging. And then the time gap is what's super impressive because you've got about, you've got three weeks between the first two, which is crazy. And you've got, I think like five weeks to the next one. So basically they're in a span of about eight weeks, two months. So like 300 mile races in two months. It's pretty nuts. It's so impressive. <laughs> also, when she won Western States, her time was fast enough that she would have won the race overall against all the men in multiple years, including a bunch of years that Scott Jurek won. So it was a really historic unicorn special moment. Yeah. And then even when she started UTMB, she said, I'm tired and she was struggling and she still killed everyone. So seeing her on tired legs still pull that off was amazing. Like at Western, she just looked great. At Hard Rock, I guess I was at all the races, which is kind of special. But I was at Western, she looked great. I was at Hard Rock, she looked kind of rough early on. And then she just like came into her own and killed it. And then at UTMB, I talked to her after the race. She was like, I knew the wheels were going to come off somewhere. It was just a matter of when. And she said they came off about 60 miles in. She said like 60 miles in. Like the wheels came off and she was just like, she said she was just sort of like, you know, it's all relative, but in her mind, she was just kind of like waddling from then on to like the finish, which, you know, it's not exactly a waddle, but she's still crushing it. But like, like for her, it was like after 60 miles, she was just like, my body's done and I just have to like get to the finish. Um, And she did. I've never seen that much mental and physical toughness in a human. For people that might not know what UTMB is, can you explain the race briefly? Yeah, so in Europe, there's a mountain called Mont Blanc. It's about 15,000 feet tall. Um, The towns that surround it sit around 3,000 feet. So it has a super big prominence, about 12,000 feet Hmm. of prominence, which makes it a very impressive mountain. They call it the rooftop of Europe. I'm not sure that it's actually the highest peak in Europe, but they call it the rooftop of Europe. And around it, there's a trail, a hiking route called the TMB, the Tour du Mont Blanc, that encircles the mountain. It doesn't summit the mountain. It goes around it. But in doing so, it still goes over some big passes. Basically, the trail bounces back and forth between 3,000 feet and 8,000 feet. Um, And the route is roughly 100 miles long, and it's a very popular hiking route People from all over the world come to hike it. There's huts along the way. They break it up into several days um, and stop at the huts or stop at the towns or just camp. Um, And it's super popular. And then I think it was 20 years ago, they decided to make it a race. The race is 106 miles. It circles the mountain. Um, It starts in France. 
goes into Italy, then goes into Switzerland, and then comes back into France. So it's really unique. One race, three countries, giant loop, like just sort of like your perfect, cool, picturesque setup. Like it's just sort of like if you're going to make a perfect route that's like really, really cool, this, this is it. Watching it live this year, it was so stunning. I mean, they put on such an incredible production. UTMB does just the amount of cameras they have out on the course. Um, but the, the scenery that you're running through, like this, and you're seeing a sunrise and a sunset in most cases, at least a sunrise. Yeah, yeah, you're, depending yeah on how we, fast you we are, start at 6 p.m. You know, the sun goes down a few hours into the race. And then you run through an entire night, which is kind of cool because everybody runs through at least one full night. Some races are started early morning. The leaders actually finish before ever needing a headlamp. UTMB is cool because everybody has to go through the night experience. Um, some people go through it twice. <laughs> they go through two nights. <laughs> yeah. Um, the people at the front of the field go through one night. You actually go through some really beautiful parts of the course in the night. So there's actually a lot of stuff that you like you get the beauty of the night, but but you can't exactly see the full beauty of like what you're running through, which is kind of funny, but it's great either way. It's a huge race. You have to qualify for it. There's a few thousand people that qualify and come out and run several different versions of the race. Like it's a series of races, yeah. right? But the one that you place second in, what place does it hold in the wider world of ultra running in terms of importance? In my mind, it's like winning silver at the Olympics, getting second at UTMB. Is that a good approximation or is... Yeah, I would say within our sport, especially with the developments at UTMB and how much they've pushed it to be this sort of like championship event. Um, yeah, it would be like that. Um, our, our sport is fairly disjointed in that there's all these different series and There's even world championships, which I think the world championships are quite prestigious. But I think most people would tell you that UTMB itself is actually a level above our world championships. Hmm. Um, Now, I think our world championships, I've, I've run them several times over the years, and I think they are catching up and they're becoming a very world class, uh, event. Um, and they are, I think one of the most competitive things on the calendar now uh, because they've made some changes and they've just got a lot of traction with getting like it to be more competitive and whatnot. Um, but UTMB still kind of like holds holds their own as like, this is this is the big show. Totally. Um, like sure, Western States is big too in the United States, but UTMB is unique. It's like they accept a much larger field. I mean, I think over the course of the week, I think I heard there were like, like 11,000 people racing this year, not in UTM, just UTMB. I think UTMB is like 2,500 people, Mm -hmm. which is nothing compared to like the New York City Marathon or the Boston Marathon, but that's a very big race for a trail race. But then there's, there's three championship races that occur, OCC, CCC, and UTMB. So OCC is 50K, CCC is 100 and like 101k and utmb is 106 miles so it's like the three standard distances of ultra running like they have this whole series that leads in to this pinnacle event totally um so yeah it's very very high up there ultra running in the states has been picking up in the last several years it seems like it's been growing in popularity do you have a different experience when you show up at a european race yeah it's i mean it's similar in ways because i still get recognized in the states like 
I tell people like I'm not Walmart famous. Like I can walk around Walmart no problem. Like nobody knows who I am. But if I go in the running space, like to an ultra race or a trail race, people do recognize me. It happens more now in the States than it used to. I do actually like shake a lot of hands and take a lot of pictures and talk to a lot of people in the States when I'm at races, but not nearly as much as when I'm in Europe. In Europe, American ultra runners are like a bit more of a unicorn because we don't go over there all the time. Um, so when we are there, it's it's just it's just kind of unique and special and people get really excited. So yeah, like when I'm in Chamonix, like sort of my battle all week leading into the race is to tr try not to be in town very much. I like meeting people and I like talking to them and, and I like taking pictures and stuff, um, but before the race, I'm like so focused of like trying not to get sick and just like trying to like rest and be focused. Actually, I traveled to Thailand last year to race and that was nuts. Apparently there's a lot of fans in Thailand. You're huge in Thailand. Um, yeah, it's wild. Cause I like, I've barely been to Asia Yeah, and I go there and it was like so many people knew who I was. It's fun to meet those people. So you're having this experience of celebrity. Have you had any uh, starstruck moments yourself? Any celebrity encounters at races? Oh, I had a weird one uh, this year at the rut because I was at the rut, which is a race that my teammate Mike Foot puts on in Montana. In Such Big, a good race. In Big Sky. And uh, it, this was after UTMB. So there we were doing like group runs and things um, with with my sponsor, the North Face, and people were meeting me and taking pictures and things. And then the tables were flipped because apparently uh, this year at the rut, um, Jessica Beale and Justin Timberlake were there because um, <laughs> apparently they have a, from, from what I've been told, they have a house in Bozeman, Montana. Uh -huh. And so jessica beale apparently runs and she signed up for the rut i i grew up watching seventh heaven with my sisters like pretty religiously so like <laughs> yeah. i mean so it's not jessica beale it's it's mary from seventh heaven right. you know for me it's like mary from seventh heaven is racing the rut it was like this is amazing uh so we were kind of joking about it like all weekend felt like everybody was like low-key stalking justin timberlake but everybody's like a nerdy ultra runner so and trail runner so it's like nobody really has the guts to like go up to him but like everybody knows he's there he was like at the start line at like 6 a.m for the 50k and i slept in and wasn't there and one of the north face employees was racing and just went up to Justin and was like, hey, can I have a five five for good luck? And he was like, sure. And he high-fived him. <laughs> and then uh, I was doing this thing with my with my little bus that I live in. I was giving out free donuts that I was making in my bus. And then my team manager tried to get me to give one to Jessica Beale because she was she was there hanging out too. And I got within like six feet of her just like totally like chickened out i like oh, no. gave donuts to these like little girls who i think were like in her group of friends mm -hmm. um and then i just like totally chickened out like walked away um but uh that's yeah. amazing but then one of my north face teammates was like she always gives me a hard time Brittany charbonneau always gives me a hard time about being like famous in the ultra world and and i 
And she was like, Zach, this, see, this is how people feel when they come up to you. And I was like, eh, I'm not sh-. like, I, I hope they're not that terrified. Cause like, I was like pretty ter like, I don't know if terrified is the right word, but I was like very intimidated. Yeah. And I was like, I hope people don't feel that intimidated coming up to me. I hope I feel approachable to people cause I don't want them to be really like scared to talk to me. Yeah. <laughs> so. I want to dive into what got you into this in the first place. I I was a soccer player growing up. I think I started playing soccer in like third grade. I was like that weird kid who like when the coach would make us run sprints, but I was like the weird kid who like actually liked that and wanted to like run more of them yeah. at the end of practice. As we got older in school, we started running these like half mile and mile races in gym class. That was like where I figured out like, oh, this is like the part of running I'm good at. I'll get beat in the sprints, but if anything that gets like fairly long, I can beat like most of the kids in the school. Hmm. Um, And so that's kind of where it started. And then it's just went from there. It's like high school, track and cross country, junior and senior year, and then college, track and cross country. And then, and then I left and, you know, I loved running. So I was obviously just going to keep running. Yeah. What kept you in it? What did you love about it? I think for me, it's like a mental release. It's just a way to like, sort of like decompress and like get rid of stress. Not that that's like the reason I was really doing it, but that was like a very big benefit of it. Um, Like you could have a rough day in college and just go out and just like just sort of like run angry yeah (laughs) like just run hard and just like get it out um or be super stressed about like you know a test coming up and you could just be so stressed and then go out for a 10 mile run and just clear your head yeah um so i like those aspects of it but i also i think i just i like the rhythm of it i like how it feels i I like the challenge i don't know like i just like being a little different and most people are like why would you run? It's just miserable. I don't know, but I like that stuff. And, and I like being outside. I like progress. And I like seeing myself get better at something. Totally. And running is a really good outlet in life for like, even if nothing else in life is feeling productive, running is this one thing you can work at daily and oftentimes see productivity. It's just really nice to have something that you can be like, hey, look, I'm putting in work and I'm getting better. Yeah, um, totally. And, and that's very satisfying. Ethan, was is that how you would say that you relate to running? I think for me, it's self-care and something I can control in my life and see measurable returns. Just like mm-hmm. Zach said, when you're younger, you don't really know what self-care means or how therapeutic it is for your mind, heart, and soul. But once you're an adult, you realize how important it is. So I love being outside running trails and hearing the leaves crunch underneath my feet and hear the wind. When people ask if I run with music, I generally don't unless I'm doing a painful tempo workout. So for me to hear my own breath, have that cathartic self-attunement moment is really healthy from a self-care and emotional perspective. Hmm. Yeah, really well said. Zach, when did running shift from like a passion to a career for you? And was that a really abrupt turning point or did it start to happen gradually for a long time running was just sort of a passion uh, it was just like something i was pretty good at but like i ran for a division three school like you don't get scholarships to run at division three like i was studying mechanical engineering 
Right. You know, I was at a, a good academic school with a pretty good running program. I was one of the better runners on my team, but not necessarily the best runner. Like you go through like preseason for cross country and you kind of feel like a professional runner because it's like, oh, they bring us up to school and they like feed us and house us. And we just run like twice a day. And, you know, we're just like running and napping and eating yeah. and hanging out. We're like, man, like this is probably what it's like to be sponsored. That would be a rad lifestyle. But I was, it was like, nobody was going to give me a professional contract coming out of college. I was a 10K specialist. There were like big chunks of minutes difference between me and guys that were signing pro contracts. Wow. Yeah. Um, you know, I was running 10K in like the low 31s. Pro guys are running at 27, 20. I, I, I don't even like that's, I'm kind of naive. Like I'm not much in that world anymore, but like, you know, those guys are running 28 minutes and under. The guys winning these big city marathons now are averaging faster per mile than I averaged for 10 kilometers on a track, <laughs> you know? So that gives you a little perspective, Yeah, yeah. you know? But then after college, I just really loved running. So I was going to keep doing it. And then I sort of like stumbled my way into like trail running. Mm -hmm. um, and then actually sort of through working on the cruise ships, stumbled my way into ultra running, which sounds really weird. Um, but that's kind of what happened. And then it, and then it took off. Like it wasn't until like 2013 when I ran JFK yeah. that I, uh, I had actually before JFK, so this, these races were done under the encouragement of my track coach from mm -hmm. high school, Jeff Bradley, who's actually there at UTMB this year to watch me race, which wow. was really special because he's, he's the reason I'm in the sport because he like took me under my, his wing in high school and really encouraged me. And then after college, he kind of saw my, he like saw my strengths and was like, you need to go run like an ultra. You need to run. He said JFK 50, which is a popular race on the East Coast. Um, but I was unsure. So I went and ran uh, US 50K National Trail Championships out in Nevada. I actually finished like sixth or something, which isn't bad, but I was a far away from like first. And I was like, ah, maybe I'm not so good at this. And then sort of like, a, well, I have nothing to lose whim, I went and ran JFK like he suggested. And it's a historic race and they know what time like what's a good time there. So I ended up I ended up winning that year in 2013. I beat um some really good runners, um, including Rob Carr, who's a legend of the sport. That year had been very unbeatable. Like basically he wasn't losing anything. And I ended up finishing ahead of him yeah he, he actually dropped very late in the race like mile 38 or something but uh we ran together for a long time and then i finished first and, and but then my time was the third fastest time in history at that time it's oh, no wow. longer the sport has gone faster um but it was third fastest in history so it really meant something because that course was like pretty historic a lot of fast guys had ran it they like if you ran a fast time there it was meaningful so after that in 2013 then then nike approached me they were like in the process of starting this sort of up and coming trail team hmm. basically they found all these sort of like young guys who like without much sponsorship experience 
and signed us to this team. I ran for Nike for three years and had a very good three years, but the whole time it was kind of like, am I a professional athlete? Like what? Because Mm -hmm. I was not making a full-time living off of that. I had this very entry-level salary, which I was happy to have. It was a foot in the door for me. I really was just building my resume. I hadn't done much yet. So I had this very entry-level contract. I made some money off of running. I still kept like a day job and I just sort of chased the dream. I mean, from a focus standpoint, I was like a full-time runner, but from a financial standpoint, it was like my side hustle. Yeah, yeah, You know, totally. So um, yeah, and then it wasn't until like the end of those three years with Nike, then um, I got connected with an agent. We talked, there was a lot of interest from other companies and then we ended up signing a deal that made me more of a pro from a financial standpoint. Um, And then it's grown over the years since then. But yeah, it was really just kind of this passion I chased all the way up until 2013. And then boom, this one race took me from like, nobody knows who I am to like, I'm doing all these like interviews and there's, you know, a brand like Nike reaching out and, and it was just very like, whoa, my life is, my life is changing. (laughs) That's wild. That's a pretty exciting shift. I know you dealt with injury for a year or two, um, a few years ago, what was that like being separated from running? Did it change how you thought about the place that it has in your life? Yeah, I went through, well, I to back up, I was rarely ever injured coming up through high school and college, um, which was sort of a blessing and a curse because it was a blessing in that I was rarely injured. It was a curse in that, like, I don't know that I ever really learned a real healthy way to approach being injured and getting through it. I feel like it it, it, it kind of like started in like the early parts of 2018 and then it just snowballed. Hmm. And then it took through like, like December 1st or something of 2020, it culminated in me getting a surgery to have a Haglund's deformity removed. I guess you could say it was a fairly dark time because like running was my outlet Running was like what helped me feel productive. It it helped me feel like satisfied with myself and my efforts. It very much gave me this sense of productivity and accomplishment. Like, oh, what did I do today? Well, I went out and trained. Like, okay, so I feel I feel satisfied with my day. Like, sure, I did other things today, but running was the one thing that really made me feel like I accomplished something. And when I couldn't really run, you take away that aspect. Sure, I found maybe other things to do that felt productive, but it's not quite the same. You still know that like, oh, I didn't run today or, oh, I ran, but it was like pretty, you know, measly, you know? And then when I did run, a lot of times it was painful. And that was really hard because running was something, is something that brings me a lot of joy and satisfaction and just like makes me feel really good. Like I really do enjoy running. But when I was injured, I'd go out and it would just hurt. And it was like every step basically was just a reminder that I'm still hurt. And so this thing that is normally fun and freeing is now actually kind of like depressing yeah. because it's like you're just reminding yourself that you're still broken because hmm. it just because it just hurts. And it's also just not very fun because it hurts. Yeah. Um, but maybe more so than that, it's just the constant reminder of like, 
I'm not where I want to be. I'm still injured and, and I don't know how to fix this. And then on top of that being sponsored, it was hard because you felt like you couldn't do your job. It was like, these guys are literally paying me to run and to run races and specifically to do well in them. I can't even run right now, let alone race, let alone win. And then that, then you just feel bad at your job. Yeah. Did you ever come to like peace with that or was your adaptation to that moment pivoting and figuring out those other ways that you could keep your body moving and keep, keep things active? Yeah, I don't know if I ever like, I wouldn't necessarily say I ever fully came at peace with it, like of just like, okay, this is where you're at and just like accept this. I think I was a bit more bullheaded approach of like, this is very tough. Yeah. And I'm just going to put my head down and try to get through it. Mm -hmm. And then like, there will be a greener pasture eventually, hopefully. Um, I'm just going to do what I can to like train and rehab and get back to what I want to do. But there wasn't really like a, okay, I'm at peace with this. And if this doesn't work out, I'll also be okay. Right. I don't think I really thought, I was more like stubborn and was like, this is what I want. Yep. And I don't know, I can't guarantee I'm going to get it back, but I'm sure going to try. We've known each other for a while and you don't strike me as someone that uh, spends a lot of time building a plan B. No, I don't think I'm much of a plan B person. I'm like, this is what I want. <laughs> and I'm just going to like stubbornly push until like I get it or I don't get it. And then I don't know. I'll just be like, well, I enjoyed the process, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, and maybe I, maybe I only partly enjoyed the process. But it seems to be working for you. Yeah. In so- yeah. In some ways, like, yeah. I don't know, maybe sometimes it would be good to have a plan B, but like, yeah, I, I'm kind of like, I'm a pretty like all or nothing. I think which is also sometimes why some areas of my life progress so slowly mm. because I'm like, well, I don't want like second best. I don't yeah. want like halfway. I just like, I want to figure out what I want and then I want to go get that. Talking about the mental and emotional place that running holds in your life and it's obviously a big part of your life. Speaking to runners more like myself and some of our listeners who are like putting in some miles a week, but not the mileage that you're putting in. I think it's easy to get caught up in comparing data on Strava and feeling like what you're doing personally in this running space is like not matching up. One little piece that I found to be a great window back into running for me especially emotionally, is the writing of this guy, Scott Parker. And Ethan introduced me to this collection of essays and poems. We read it on the way to the rut one year, a couple years ago. And then there's a a short piece in it that I'll read to you. uh, And I'd love to get your impression called The Joy of Running, Qua Running, which just qua just means as running. So like the joy of running as running. It feels like this generous invitation back into the world of running and yeah, so I'll, I'll read this and then we'll give you a little anecdote about how running still loves you that uh, I'll let Ethan tell. Okay, the joy of running qua running. Recently, I heard something in an old Alan Watts lecture that made me question the way we talk about running. It seems to me that more often than not, we talk about it in the way we talk about everything else as another duty to be squeezed into our already busy and productive lives. 
You know the attitude. Whether it's waking up early to get in three miles before work or running during the lunch break or stopping off at the gym to hit the treadmill on the way home, we must keep up with our responsibility to stay in shape or dire to get in shape. Running is one more thing we have to do. It's one more thing that's good for us. But what could be more absurd than running because it's good for us? We're all dying all the time. Any decade now, each of us will be gone. True, these good for you say, but don't you know, if you run, you'll get an extra part of a decade added on at the end? I can't help but recall the old Woody Allen joke. This food is terrible and in such small portions. Who wants to do something they don't want to do in order to have more time in which to do things they don't want to do? If running is good for us, it's good in the way that breathing air and drinking water are good for us. No one ever said, I've thought about it and I've decided to breathe some air. Or I reviewed the data and it would be wise for me to drink this water. No, we drink water because we're thirsty. We breathe air because as soon as we don't, it's the only thing we want. It's the same with running. You run because you need to, because you can't imagine living without it, because it brings you joy. And if you don't miss running the way you miss breathing and drinking, there's no reason you should. So it feels like um, an invitation held loosely, right? Like if, if running is like breathing to you, then breathe and run. And like, if running is not that for you, go find the thing that is. And I think for us, at least, um, I can't speak for Ethan. It's, it's that for me. Like I feel mental clarity. I feel focused. I feel healthy. Like I process all the stress and anxiety through my body when I'm running. So when we read that, when Ethan introduced me to this piece by Scott Parker, we read it while we're getting ready at the car, at the rut, like a, like a prayer before the run. And then the next day, our mutual friend, Rachel was running the 50 K. Ethan and I just ran the 28 K the day before we met Rachel at the start line in the dark and like read it to her like a benediction, <laughs> like a blessing before her run, um, which felt like special and magical. But Ethan, what happened after that? Tell the second part of that story that running still loves you came out of. Yeah, I think the short story is that running, uh, like Zach said, is a beautiful expression of who we are and some of us desperately need to do it or become grumpy as my wife would attest in our house um, but it's a f it can be fickle and you have these moments where maybe you do a workout and you feel great and you're really proud of yourself and other moments where you just feel horrible or maybe you're injured and you're and you're on an aerodyne in your parents basement variously pumping your arms thinking what am i doing right now so so it's this weird fickle relationship and i but I think it, initially people get introduced to running as a really beautiful expression of movement. And then maybe they get on social media, get a Fitbit, their first Garmin, or jump on Strava and get polluted by this idea that perhaps they did a three-mile run today. And it might be the best run they've ever done, but then they look and see a pro or a faster friend and that can ruin their experience so one of my goals for myself and my friends uh, and this is really nerdy admittedly is this idea that running as an idea loves when we engage with it yeah so our friend rachel who pat mentioned 
is very vocal on Strava about how she's feeling on her runs. And I've love I love uh, how she is. And so she's been vocal about that fickle relationship. And so I've been trying to encourage her yeah. on the good moments and bad moments. So one day she had a really bad moment. And because I'm sarcastic and I like to poke, I responded on Strava in the comments and simply wrote, running still loves you. And she seemed angry by that initially, but I just wanted her to know that running will always be there for you. You can always come back to it, even if you say mean things to running. (laughs) Yes, which over the course of several weeks, it looked like uh, if Strava was any indicator that she was breaking up with running and it was messy. Um, (laughs) But then Ethan was always there with that reminder that um, running still loved her. And that's something that stuck with me and I connected it uh, to this, to the heart of Scott's piece and that whole book, which I'll, I'll link in the show notes. The The whole collection is called The Joy of Running, Qua Running. But I just thought that was beautiful. I think it's a beautiful way to engage the sport and to encourage other people that are experiencing that very normal feeling of defeat or frustration. That being said, those runners among you who are listening are people who want to dive in, be encouraged. Running still loves you, even if you haven't started yet. I guess to take this into maybe more technical practicals, can we talk a little bit to that group of runners, the the hobbyists, the up-and-coming amateurs? Do you have any advice for them on, we'll go like training through recovery. So let's talk training and nutrition. Mm-hmm. Do you have any words of wisdom to share with them? I mean, I think especially bouncing off of what you guys have just been talking about um, with this with this quote and um, running still loving you and, and the Strava game. And I think the whole thing, if you're just like starting out or you're doing it more casually or, or, or even you have big goals, but they seem intimidating, it doesn't need to be super complicated. Yeah. Um, like my, my college roommate would, would always say like, uh, and he was a very good runner himself. And he would say running is science, but it's not rocket science. <laughs> um, you know, and sometimes like with all the information that's out there and all the podcasts and all the coaches and all the articles and all the studies, it can really start to feel like a bit of rocket science sometimes. Mm. Um, and I think that can feel intimidating. You know, at its core, it's a pretty simple activity. Now, granted, yes, there are some complexities. There are ways to dial it in and fine tune it. But especially when you're just starting it out, like don't overcomplicate it. The one main way to get better at running is to just go out and run and like, have some form of consistency yeah. in your habits. There's something really nice about ritual and there's also something very helpful about ritual. Yeah, I think breaking it down, like when I think about myself coming into the world of trail and ultra running, I actually like, I was not on Strava. I like barely used social media. I run with a, like a smartwatch or a G- like a, like a Garmin now. Um, but I didn't do that until like, I think like 2020 or something. Cause I would time runs. I, tra- I trained mainly on time. Yeah. I often didn't know how far I ran or how many vertical feet I ran. I just ran like on time. That was a habit I got to train into training on the cruise ship. 
Um, and then I just carried it over to training on land. And it was really nice for being in the mountains and trail running and at altitude because like pace is not totally irrelevant, but it's just like, you know, it's just kind of all over the place. And it's like, well, I could go out and run for 70 minutes, you know, on roads at sea level and run 10 miles. I could go out and run for 70 minutes in the mountains and cover six miles. Um, but the effort is still there. You're still putting out effort over 70 minutes. So anyways, I would train on time and I had this watch that I would hold in my hand and I had a friend who thought like, oh, he must be like really obsessed about like his time. Like that must be why he holds it in his hands so he can just like stop it like immediately. Yeah. And I was like, and then she was like, I got to know you. And I realized he doesn't give two hoots about his time. I ran with it in my hand because it was broken. She got to know me and was like, yeah, he doesn't care. Like it is not an obsessive thing. Eventually I I made some blunders in like nutrition, timing of nutrition and racing. I was like, okay, maybe I should start wearing a watch because I used to just take my watch off for races, even ultras. Oh, wow. And then I started messing up nutrition. I was like, okay, maybe I need the watch to like at least know when to eat. But yeah, I just kept it like very simple. And I guess that would be like, and, and I and I raced very well like that, preparing like that and racing like that. I raced very well. Um, and I wasn't so concerned about like the ship itself was actually this very freeing time of my life because I was like, I ran a very good race at JFK and then I disappeared on the ship and I trained for Lake Sonoma. You know, so like I was just sort of in this blind space of like, I don't even know what guys are doing. Like, yeah. I don't know how they're training. I, I see some race results. Um, but I'm like, all I really know is like what I'm doing and I'm just trying to get fitter. So I guess to bring it back to like people in the sport, no matter what level you're at, I think sometimes a good approach can be to just keep it simple, you know, maybe keep track of one variable. I'm going to run whatever it is, like three times a week for 30 minutes, you know, and then next week I'm going to try and run three times a week for 35 minutes. Yeah. Or like, I'm going to run four times a week for, the, you know, and you just like gradually build it and you keep track of like one variable and you try to stay consistent. Because if you're just getting out there and running and being consistent, like it's going to progress. And then as you get higher up, yeah, add in some workouts, maybe run more days a week. But like, don't feel like you need to jump in at this like high level complicated and, and just like feel it out. Don't be trapped by like, well, I got to go out and run this certain pace. The body doesn't really know. Like, does the body really care what, what the, the pace is? Like, does it really know, does it fully understand like a mile or a seven minute mile or a nine minute mile? Like it knows effort. So you go out and you put in the effort. It's like, does this effort feel appropriate? And if the answer is yes, then it's like, yes, do that effort. Mm -hmm. And then over time, your efforts maybe get harder or efforts that used to feel a little hard are now feeling easy. And, and, and you really just like kind of train off of, off of effort a lot and, and don't fall victim to like the comparison game. Like, I mean, it's super easy to do, but like, as they say, like comparison is the thief of joy. Like you're happy with something until you look back and be like, oh, but actually last week I ran it 30 seconds faster, so now I'm bummed. Or actually my friend ran it five minutes faster, so now I feel like a bad runner. But it's really just like your own your your own efforts. I think that's great. Ethan, do you want to weigh in on that? Because I know 
you can probably see a, a couple different perspectives in that. I know analysis and numbers are dear to your heart and part of what brings you joy in this space. Yeah, I can tell you personally that the more complicated I make my training and the more time I spend on Strava, the more I hate running and the worse I perform. So uh, recently I've been deconstructing that over the last weeks or months. So I don't have a lot to add. Um, everything Zach says, pure gold. The only thing I would add is that one of my new philosophies, which I use during uh, maybe the off season or a looser training period, is just do whatever sounds fun. So like for a week, I might do four runs at 40 minutes each, and I give myself permission to choose a runner activity that seems fun for that day. And that could be running uphill, going slow on a treadmill with a podcast, going to the park with a friend, be on trails, uh, but just giving myself the flexibility to honor how my body's feeling on that day instead of forcing myself in such a rigid structure. Yeah, well said. For race nutrition, how are you timing that and what quantities and are you using calories as a metric or something else? We used to maybe talk calories a lot. I think now we talk more like grams of carbohydrate. If you're in the space, you hear a lot about like 90 grams of carbohydrate per hour. There probably is a range there. I think some people are shooting for like 80 grams. There's probably people doing, you know, maybe more like 70 grams. But I would say like basically in that like 80, like 80 grams plus or minus, mm -hmm. I don't know, 10 to 15 grams uh, per hour is like what you're shooting for. And that's generally I shoot for around... I shoot for around 90 grams of carbohydrate per hour in a race, but you hold it at least a little bit loosely because if your stomach is like not accepting that, you like dial down or if you need more, you dial up. It's not just like a strict formula sure. um, for me at least. And delivery mechanism, is that all fluids? Are you doing gels? Yeah. So like when I'm training, oh, it's like, I ate a lot of Sour Patch Kids this summer. <laughs> Gels are like expensive and you have to have them on hand. And I do use like, I would use like a lot of Goo Roctane powder, which gives me, I think like 60 grams of carbohydrate. So that's like a good baseline. When I'm training for hundreds, like in the summer, there's like some point in the summer where I just turn into full on like 10 year old kid. Like I just like roll up to like a 7-Eleven, buy like bags of like Sour Patch Kids and candy and like, a big slushy and I just like go off like sipping away on sugar. And some days it is more like nutrition products from companies, whether it's like goo or scratch or yeah. knack or like I have experimented with various things this year. It, it gets a lot less loosey goosey on race day. Yeah, I've raced on goo products for years and I'm actually like a free agent in the nutrition world. I went back to goo for all of my race fuel this year. Basically, I'm using some sort of high calorie drink that also has some electrolytes in. And mine is usually Gooroctane. That usually gets me like, I think 60 grams of carbohydrate per serving along with some electrolytes. And then I usually try to take one gel per hour. Like every hour I'm getting like 60 grams of carb through my drink and that's like 250 calories. Uh, another like 30 grams of carbohydrate from my gel. So that's about 90 and then that's also 100. So if you're talking calories, it's like 350 calories, which okay. like 300 to 400 calories an hour is kind of what they say. 
Um, so that's what I'm doing. And then I'm supplementing with water um, as I like, as I need or want. And I'm also taking the big change I made this year is I take a lot more electrolytes. So I used to kind of think that if I was drinking the Roctane and I was eating the gels, I was getting enough electrolytes, but I was like always losing my downhill legs and having a lot of like pain in my muscles late in races. Someone helped me figure out that like there wasn't actually all that much sodium in the Roctane drink or in the gels and that maybe I should take more. And I started doing a lot more sodium this year. I aim for my baseline in sodium is to be consuming about a thousand milligrams of sodium for every liter of fluid that I'm taking in. And even if you're putting in like, so you're drinking a liter of Roctane every two hours and you're taking a gel every hour. So two gels and a liter of Roctane over two hours, you're still undershooting on your sodium. Yeah, so how did you supplement So then I supplement with electrolyte capsules, like Goo makes electrolyte capsules. Um, But I'm usually just carrying like a big bag of electrolyte capsules and I'm trying to take like, I'll have a goal of like, okay, this is how many I need to take per hour. It's like one or two. I think it's like one per hour to get to that level. Mm -hmm. But then I totally adjust it basically on feel as I'm out there because like, I actually sensed calf cramping like super early in UTMB. So I just started like popping electrolyte pills until I like got that to subside. Hmm. And so then once that subsides, I might back off to more like one pill per hour, two pills per hour. But then like, as I need, like if I feel the muscles, like they're not quite right, I just take more, more sodium. This year was the first year I think I ever ran UTMB and didn't lose my downhill legs. And it was remarkable. Like I I think part was the training, but I also feel like the dialing in of the sodium Hmm. really, really helped. A thousand milligrams of sodium per liter of fluid that I take in is my baseline, but that is gonna vary from athlete to athlete. And it varies for me even like throughout the race, I think. So you really just have to like figure out and play with it yourself. Is there sodium in the electrolyte pills or are you getting that from somewhere else? The ones that I take are from Gu and they're a mix of things. But yeah, it's like sodium. I think it's like B vitamins. It's a variety of things. And and the different brands like have probably different concoctions of electrolytes in there. But it's it's primarily the sodium that I'm after. Let's hit a couple of listener questions. Ethan, do you have ones that you want to start with and then I'll... Toss a few in. Yeah, thanks. Uh, the big one I get from a lot of my friends, and most of them are maybe 25 up to 50, and they've got parents, maybe a difficult career, uh, obviously family, and they want to still train three, four, five days a week. And so as we all get older, you know, a lot of us are struggling with uh, accumulative fatigue. And so it's harder to get sleep, and the sleep that you do get, maybe it's not as high quality as you'd like. So as you accumulate stress from family, life, work, et cetera, do you have any ideas on how to avoid cumulative fatigue or how to recover better or faster? Or maybe any advice for a parent going through that stage to not feel so tired all the time? Yeah, this is a funny question because I'm not a parent. So I'm like, I'm like giving advice on a world that I don't even live in. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I, like I actually have thought recently, I'm like, maybe I should like practice for being a parent. Like I should start training at like 3 a.m. But I guess maybe the closest thing I would have is like when I worked at bar camp 
and I wasn't a parent by any means, but I was I was running at a high level and I was also helping to man bar camp and take care of all these hikers and people. And that was very much like you went out and trained and then you came back and like jumped right back into like cooking meals and washing dishes and being on your feet and helping people and cleaning bathrooms. And, and there were parts of that caretaking gig that were very chill, like in the winter. And it was like, yeah, I went out for a run and then I came back and napped in front of the wood stove because there was not much traffic. What I could foresee being a good benefit there is like maximizing the recovery opportunities that you do have. So like make sure you have a good mattress, like a good sleep setup so that when you do sleep, even if it's only for like four hours, that you get some good solid rest. Hmm. Um, Because I think quality of sleep is also like very, is very important. Like ideally, yes, get good quantity, but like what parent honestly is getting eight hours of sleep a night, you know? So if you can't get quantity, get quality. And if, if you want quality, then set, set yourself up for success there and get like, you know, get like a good mattress and, and things. Now you're talking to a guy who sleeps in a bus on like two layers of like memory foam essentially like there's a lot of expensive ways to go about recovery but i think the biggest things you can do are just like nutrition like have have good eating habits which can probably also be challenging with a family um have good sleep habits um and even if they're not like as long as you'd like make them good quality or try to get some consistency there Killian talks about this, about these recovery products and how he's basically like, you can spend all this money, but you're sort of like chasing. It's like cyclists who spend $10,000 on a bike that weighs four ounces less, but they're 10 pounds overweight. It's like, you know, it's like, well, maybe you could just like, you know, like not that that weight is the be all and end all, but like, you know, maybe if you're like a little overweight, you could probably be a lot cheaper just to lose five pounds than to spend 10 grand on a bike that's four ounces lighter and it's kind of the same with running it's like you can chase all these like fancy products of like recovery boots and recovery shakes and like expensive gadgets or you can just try to like sleep better because that's a huge bang for your buck um right there and then killian also like he made a graph of like all these things bang for your buck of like how much it costs and how beneficial it is for recovery and then i think it was maybe john albin told him he's like yeah but you forgot something like you forgot children (laughs) you should have put children on the graph like having children and it was like it, it was a graph of like expensive and like good for recovery and it was like children are like way out here because they're like they're very expensive and very bad for recovery. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> Ethan, how have you made that work for yourself? Yeah, I think if you have limited time, uh, just being hyper-disciplined, like Zach said, um, one thing that really helps uh, my wife and I is that I'm overly disciplined to a fault about scheduling uh, exercise time for myself. And then sometimes if, if my wife, wife isn't, um, she might become resentful. So making a plan together to carve out space so that each of you can have time um, to get outside or do whatever you want to. Um, also from a sleep perspective, sleep is so precious. Obviously screen time and TV shows, things like that. 
is not great for your brain, but from a training perspective, alcohol slows down your recovery, kills your sleep, and I can really feel a big difference. Um, so just avoiding alcohol at all or in moderation or especially after a big workout or a training run or, or, or a long run when your body's deep in that recovery cycle and really needs um, extra nutrients to recover. We did on the, the nutrition side, we did a episode on you know nutrition from a family perspective, but the simple advice here is try to go shopping at the same time every week, have a plan, have a list. Because when you need food as a family, it needs to be there ready and it needs to be quickly available. Um, so a lot of times you don't have time to cook um, or if you panic and you don't have, haven't planned well beforehand, that's when you end up eating junk. So a better planning proactive process is good. For me, I like to keep olive oil, avocado, nuts, sweet potatoes, black beans, things like that. So if I finish a long day or a big run, I have some healthy options available to me that are quick as opposed to just drinking beer and eating pizza. Yeah. I, I feel like also like that earlier I was talking about that like effort perspective of like, does your body really know a mile? I think like when you get kids into it, like into the mix, it's also maybe important to remember that. Cause I'm like, you could be like, Oh, I need to go out and run 10 miles. It'll take me an hour and a half or it'll take me an hour, 15 or, um, and then you could be like, a parent and be like well i should take these like my wife wants me to like take the kids with me in the stroller while i run empty like well it's gonna take me so long to run 10 miles now like i push my niece and nephew around and it's like it's just it's way different but i think also you can simplify and be like well i just need an hour like i need an hour or i need like 75 minutes of like activity i'll take them and if i cover six miles that's fine. Like I'm going to get 75 minutes of work and it's going to be like, it's going to be slower, but the effort is going to be there because I'm pushing these kids. It was interesting when Killian and Emily started having kids, it was sort of like, oh, what's going to happen? And I actually thought he started to get scary fast when they had kids because my theory, and I don't know actually what he was doing, but my theory was that like, I was like, oh shoot, you know what's happening? They're having kids and Killian is going from like doing these like long days out to being like, I only have so much time. So I'm going to go out and do these like very focused, like hard sessions. And I was like, this is terrifying because now he's doing these intensities at lower volumes and he is getting really fast. Like I feel like when they started having kids, he started actually running some of his fastest times at races like Sierra's and all. And it was like, this is nuts. Everybody expects you to like struggle through this parent thing. And it's like, he is just crushing it. And my theory was that he was doing quality over quantity. And we were seeing not necessarily a better Killian, but we were seeing a different Killian. And it was a Killian that was like, like kind of running. Yeah. Kind of running even better. It was like, oh, wow, this is just like, this isn't fair, but, but it's great because it's like, he's figured he's, he's proving that it can be done. Um, and for all I know, he was out running for five hours in the middle of the night while his kid slept. Like, but my theory was he was doing quality over quantity. <laughs> okay. Quick question from Darren about stretching. Um, he said, this might not be an appropriate question for an elite ultra runner, but for the average trail runner, if I've got 60 minutes to run on a given day, what's the best way to divvy that up? And talking about stretching specifically, like stretch for 15, run 45, dynamic stretch 10, 
light run for 20 minutes, hard run for 20, cool down and stretch for 10. Like where does stretching fit into your world? And do you have any any advice on where that should fit? Yeah, I, I could probably benefit from doing more stretching. Uh, to, to be honest, like if nothing is broken, I'm usually doing very little <laughs> stretching. Uh, I always kind of feel guilty saying that. I think I'm more a fan of like dynamic stretching, especially pre-run. And it doesn't necessarily need to take a ton of time. It might even be like three minutes mm-hmm. of dynamic stretching that kind of warms you up for your run. Um, and also and like hits your problem areas, whatever they are. If you know it's like your calves or you know it's like your low back. Like sometimes my low back gets super tight. And so then I will do like some some stretching to get loosened up um, before I run. But I'd say more dynamic stretching pre-run and then static stretching, if if that's helpful to you, is probably more of like a post-run activity. And again, that could be like three minutes, but if you're consistent with it, like, okay, I hit three minutes of dynamic stretching. Um, I know I'm not. it's not gonna feel like I hit everything. I'm sure there's more I could have done, but I'm gonna at least do three minutes, then I'm gonna go run, then I'm gonna back and I'm gonna hit three minutes of static stretching a little bit done consistently is better than like a complicated routine done really sporadically so yeah i guess that would be that would be my hot tip there you know if you have extra time i don't know maybe jump in a yoga class or something i've never been a big yoga person but it's like every time you get in a yoga class, you're like, yeah, I should probably, like this would probably be good for me. Yeah. <laughs> but I just never really do it. <laughs> I I feel the same way. That's a part of your routine, isn't it, Ethan? Yeah, it is. Actually, I started doing hot yoga a couple years ago. I kind of got tricked into doing it. Um, my wife and I were looking for an activity to do together. So I started going to a local hot yoga studio um, and I showed up as this you know fit runner guy who thought I was pretty strong. And we started doing these workouts and these yoga flows. And I quickly realized I was the weakest person in the class. So I was shocked by how strong everyone was around me from a core and flexibility perspective. So really got inspired to do more of it. Um, I really focus on the core part of it and then just focus on stretching, specifically focusing on my hips, my lower back and my hamstrings. Um, I've really uh, felt a big difference from that, from recovery perspective and then just core strength. Uh, and also helps with injury prevention too. Um, if I don't go to the hot yoga studio, I've got a 20 minute uh, class, yoga class on Peloton that I love. And it's um, mainly focused on those key areas that I mentioned, back, hips, and uh, hamstrings. And so I try to do that three or four days a week. And um, that quality kind of consistent yoga and stretching really works well for me. And I definitely recommend it. Yeah. And I, I am like... Uh I'm less on stretching, but I am pretty big on core and like strength. Like I have a little like pretty simple 15 and a half minute routine I go through. I try to do like six days a week. I give myself one day. I give, I try to give my, I give myself the grace to have like one skip day. Hmm. Um, And sometimes it might be more, but usually it's pretty good at doing six to seven days a week of this like 15 and a half minute, like core and strength routine. I guess a little longer if you count the pushups I do at the end of it um and the tricep dips but um yeah it's pretty simple um and i think that's part of it um just like keep it simple um and and some days like if i'm like not i don't know it's just a crazy day or something i'll do like 
I'll cut it to like five minutes, but I try to at least always do something. Um, so yeah, some days I just, <laughs> some days I just do what I call bed core and I get in bed at night and I'm like, oh, I didn't do core. Okay, we'll do five minutes of bed core. What? And I just like, I do it in my bed. Like, and my, if you've ever seen my bus, I don't have like, I have barely any head space. So I basically have enough space to lay down. Yeah, I just do like, do like crunches or you like, you can do a plank in your bed. But I'm like, I got to do something. So I do like five minutes and then I go to sleep. <laughs> That's incredible. We didn't make it to uh, the career questions for up and coming runners, but I think we can hit that on a future episode and maybe convince you to to make a video illustrating bed core or, <laughs> or, your, or your larger like 15 minute workout block would be super helpful. If, yeah. you, if you get to a point where you decide to start a YouTube channel or you pop it up on social media, let there us know. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. Zach, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I think this will be really helpful uh, to our listeners. R- really appreciate you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was it was a lot of fun. If you or your friend have questions, drop us a line at areyouaskingforafriend at gmail. Send us your questions there and we'll work them into a future episode. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>